Okay, uh, this will be in Korean. Osunjari deja, kudri modu han gose moyota. Kronde kaptagi hanrezo, kangan parami sechage punungo katan soriga nadoni. Kudri anjaiton, un chibaner kadak chota. Krigo hyotcharam sengin puri natanadoni. Kugoshi kalajo kak saramuye watadata. Kroja kudurum modu songyangi chungmanayo. Songyangkezo chushinen nungyogro. Kudurdo arji motanen wegugoro. Maharagi Shakayata. Kutte Yerusalemen, Sege Yoro Narazo un, Kyongonan Yudendri, Mani Momurgoisata. Hanrezo Nan Param Katan, East Horider Tuko, Mulyodan Kungjundren, Kakcha, Tagi Naro Marlo, Chezadri, Maranen Kosar Tuko, or Lijung Jong Hayata. En Espanol. Y estaban todos atónitos y maravillados diciendo, Mirad. No son Galileos todos estos que hablan? ¿Cómo pues les oímos nosotros hablar cada uno en nuestra lengua en la que hemos nacido? Partos, Medos, Elamitas y los que, había, los que habitamos en Mesopotamia, en Judea, en Capadocia, en el Ponto y en Asia, en Frigía y en Panfilia, en Egipto y en las regiones de África más allá del Siriné, y romanos aquí residentes. Tanto judíos como prosélitos, cretenses y árabes, les oímos hablar en nuestras lenguas las maravillas de Dios. Y estaban todos atónitos y perplejos, diciéndose unos a otros, ¿qué quiere decir esto? Mas otros burlándose decían, están llenos de mosto. En Mandarin, Tirantongbao 方生发生的事 in Arabic, Saajari Ajab, Fok Filasama, Wa Alamat Sahat Al Ard, Haythu Yukun Dem Al Nar, Waduhan Kathif, Wa Kabul An Yaati Yom Al Rub, Dalak Yom Al Adim, Wal Shahir. Satatalam Shams, Wetahalu or Kamar illa loan them. Walakin, Kulmin Yadau, Belismarub Yahalas. Fiha Baina Israel, Ismau had al Kalam, An Yasu al Nasri, Rajal Yedu Allah, Bil Ma'ajazat, Wal Ajaab, Wa Almat, Ajaraha Allah Yedu bi Yakuna, Kumma ta Alamun. Wama Dalek, Fikad Sama Allah, Fuka al Mariatu, al Mahatumma, Wa Alamu Usabak, An 
takabadatu alehu taslebuhu wa takatalu bilgadu alafmai walakin allah akamu min bain alamwat nakasina wa waja'a almut wakam kan yamkun almut an bakii fi kasbitihi in portuguese a respeito dele disse davi eu sempre via o senhor diante de mim porque ele está à minha direita não serei abalado por isso o meu coração está alegria e a minha língua exulta o meu corpo também responderá em esperança porque tu não abandonarás no sepulcro nem permitiras que o teu santo sofra de compensação tu me fizeste conhecer os caminhos da vida e me encerrarás de alegria na tua presença. Dalam bahasa Indonesia, saudara-saudara, aku boleh berkata-kata dengan terus terang kepadamu tentang Daud, bapa bangsa kita. Ia telah mati dan dikubur, dan kuburannya masih ada pada kita sampai hari ini. Tetapi ia adalah seorang nabi dan ia tahu bahwa Allah telah berjanji kepadanya dengan mengangkat sumpah. Bahwa ia akan mendudukkan seorang dari keturunan Daud sendiri di atas tahtanya Karena itu ia telah melihat ke depan Dan telah berbicara tentang kebangkitan Mesias Ketika ia mengatakan bahwa dia tidak ditinggalkan di dalam dunia orang mati Dan bahwa dagingnya tidak mengalami kebinasaan Yesus inilah yang dibangkitkan Allah Dan tentang hal ini kami semua adalah saksi Dan sesudah ia ditinggikan oleh tangan kanan Allah dan menerima roh kudus yang dijanjikan itu. Maka dicurahkannya apa yang kamu lihat dan dengar di sini. Sebab bukan Daud yang naik ke surga, malahan Daud sendiri berkata, Tuhan telah berfirman kepada Tuanku, duduklah di sebelah kananku sampai kubuat musuh-musuhmu menjadi tumpuan kakimu. Jadi, Seluruh kaum Israel harus tahu dengan pasti bahwa Allah telah membuat Yesus yang kamu salibkan itu menjadi Tuhan dan Kristus. In Tagalog spoken in the Philippines. Nang marinig nila ito, nasaktan ang kanilang puso ay sinabi sa kay Pedro at sa ibang mga apostol. Mga Ginoo, mga kapatid, anong dapat naming gawin? At sinabi sa kanila si Pedro, Magsisi kayo at magpabautismo ang bawat isa sa inyo sa pangalan ni Jesu Kristo upang mapatawad ang inyong mga kasalanan at tatanggapin ninyo ang koloob ng Espiritu Santo sagpagkat ang panggako ay para sa inyo at sa inyong mga anak, at sa lahat ng nasa malayo, bawat isa na tinatawag nagpaningoon nating Diyos sa Kanya.
This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's all downhill from there, by the way. Uh, it's probably the highlighted service. Also, I think Jordan, who is on slides, has the gift of interpretation. So well done, Jordan. That was uh, incredible. Um, a number of months ago, uh, our car was having some trouble, as sometimes happen, and specifically, uh, the power steering was not working. And uh, I noticed this, and a few times I would open the hood and fill the car with power steering fluid, and it still wouldn't work, and pretty soon I got to the end of my tether and conceded and took into my mechanic who looked at the car and told me that the fluid line was not connected properly, which explained why the power steering fluid was not making it to the power steering pump, and my steering wheel was very difficult to turn. Have you ever tried to parallel park without power steering? My muscles got a little bit bigger, I think. It's, it's challenging. Um, it's very hard to do something like that, to drive, to steer when you're not connected to the source of power. Uh, Christianity is very similar. If any of us are to hear the gospel of Jesus, if any of us are to believe the gospel of Jesus, if any of us are going to experience transformation in our lives, it requires that we connect to the source of power. Because here's the point. We don't have the power we need within ourselves to do any of those things. Have you ever tried? Have you ever tried to just stop sinning in your own power? How's that working out? Pentecost is today. Pentecost is the day that marks the church of Jesus receiving the power they need to believe in and follow after Jesus. Pentecost is a term that, for some of you, depending on your own spiritual background, might bring up all kinds of ideas and and images in your head. Unfortunately, the idea of Pentecost uh, is often connoted with like really weird, riotous worship services uh, with people dancing and falling over and speaking gibberish, And, and that misconstrues the meaning, sadly. Pentecost literally is a Greek word. The word means 50th. It was an ancient Jewish feast that took place in the Jewish world 50 days after the feast of the Passover. And Pentecost was originally a a harvest feast in which the Hebrews would all gather after the harvest was brought in and they would celebrate. They would throw a big party thanking God for his provisions for another year. It was also known in the Old Testament as the Feast of Weeks or the Day of First Fruits because it was the day the, the first fruits of the harvest were presented to God. And, and so this is the day that we're reading about at the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 1. It also explains why there were people from all over the ancient Roman Empire in the city of Jerusalem. They had traveled to the city throughout, from throughout Rome to, to present their offerings to God and to celebrate the festival. But now, after the events recorded in Acts 2 that were just read for us, Pentecost has come to mean something new in the Christian faith. 
Pentecost takes place 50 days after the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, which happened on Passover, which is why Christians throughout church history have celebrated Pentecost around this time of year. And it's a great day. It's a celebration of God's ongoing care and provision for us. So what I want to do is think with you this morning about what we are celebrating and remembering and being called into on the day of Pentecost. Let me summarize it like this. Here's the main idea for you today. Pentecost is Jesus gifting his church with supernatural power to fulfill his mission in the world. Pentecost is Jesus gifting his church with supernatural power to fulfill his mission in the world. Let's break that sentence into two parts, and that'll be our outline. Part one, Pentecost is Jesus gifting his church with supernatural power. We pick up here in Acts 1, uh, or excuse me, Acts 2. After Jesus has been raised from the dead, Jesus has ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, which we just confessed in the Apostles' Creed. And the disciples in Acts 1 are waiting in the city of Jerusalem for power, which is exactly what Jesus had told them to do at the end of Luke's gospel. And also, if you read in Acts 1.8, you'll see Jesus say there, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so that's what they are waiting for. The power, as we read in Acts 1, is actually a person, the person of the Spirit, whom Jesus, in his earthly ministry, promised to give his disciples after he left them. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say, it's better for you for me to leave, because when I leave, I will send another comforter the Spirit. And so when when we get to Acts chapter 2, we see Jesus fulfill his promise. He pours out his Spirit on his people. He gifts his church with supernatural power. And if you noticed in the reading, this event is marked by three different phenomena. It's marked by a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It's marked by divided tongues of fire appearing on each disciple, and it's marked by people speaking and hearing and understanding different languages. So what do these phenomena mean? They help us understand Pentecost, I think. First, in verse 2, we see the Spirit descends like a mighty rushing wind. Now, you might not know this, but the Hebrew word for Spirit is the same word used for the Hebrew word for wind. And in the very first instance in the entire Bible where we hear about the Holy Spirit, it's in Genesis 1-2, where we read, the Spirit of God was hovering, you might translate that, blowing like a wind over the face of the water. And the idea is that the primordial, chaotic, uncreated mass of stuff is brought into order and is beautified by God's Spirit. Interestingly enough, here in Acts 2, the Spirit comes like a wind and orders and beautifies not God's first creation, but God's second creation, his new people, the church. Now, the idea that Luke is trying to communicate is that this was a powerful, obvious sound. Have you ever been outside in a mighty rushing wind? I have. I grew up in the panhandle of Texas, which is Tornado Alley. And I remember as a a teenager, 
One Wednesday night, we were in church doing Wednesday night activities, and a tornado was coming right through Amarillo, and everyone went down into the basement of our church. And um, my dad, as I see this out loud, I wonder why my dad let, let this happen. Me and about half a dozen men and my dad went outside and looked at the skies, and we didn't actually see the tornado, but we felt the wind. It was loud. It was powerful. It was scary. That's exactly what this would have felt like. It's the supernatural power of God coming down from heaven to each and every believer in God's work of recreation and redemption. The second phenomena are these tongues of fire. We read about them in verse 3. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Like wind, fire is a very common image in the Old Testament. And fire usually connotes the idea of threat. It's a threatening image. For example, when Israel is in the wilderness and God calls them to Mount Sinai to receive his law, we read that God shows up on the mountain with thunder and smoke and darkness. And Exodus 19 tells us this. Mount Sinai was wrapped up in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. And God tells Moses, don't let the people come near to me here on this mountain lest they die. Fire throughout the Old Testament symbolizes judgments from a righteous God against human rebellion, against human uncleanliness, against human sin. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus used similar language. In Luke 12, for example, Jesus says this, I have come to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So throughout the story of the Bible, fire is a threatening thing. The image means stay away. You're not pure enough to go before God. But now, in Acts 2, we see fire come and rest on each of the disciples, but not in a threatening way. Rather, it's in a transformative way. Matt gave me an illustration for this this week. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Matt was telling me about uh, fireweed. Um, which is a plant that grows in forests and in fields after massive forest fires go through a given area. One of the first things that comes out of the devastation is, is the purple bloom of a sprouted fireweed plant. I googled it, and you can see all kinds of beautiful pictures of this online. And it's not only the first thing that grows, it's also something that has a significant impact on all of the regeneration that takes place in the ecosystem around it. That's what the fire of God's spirit does here. He is coming not to administer judgment, but to make all things new, to give new life, to bring renewal to his people and eventually to the entire cosmos. So how can that be explained? How is it that God comes in fire and cannot be approached in the Old Testament, but the same God now sends fire and comes to meet with us in the new. It's explained in the Christian gospel. Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's wrath against human rebellion. Jesus, as he says in Luke 12, was baptized in his death 
into the fire of God's judgment. At the cross, Jesus takes our curse and our guilt on himself and pays for it fully and entirely. Jesus is burned up as the Lamb of God in God's judgment so that he can give us not a fire of condemnation, but a fire of renewal by his Spirit. Pentecost means we've been given after the resurrection of Jesus, supernatural power, the person of the Holy Spirit, so that we can believe in and follow after and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the point I want you to get. The power for change in your life, the power for mission, comes from outside of you. Think about the disciples. If you're familiar with the story of the Gospels at all, we we just read Peter gets up and preaches this amazing sermon on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 people are saved. It's an amazing revival that takes place. Literally, six weeks prior, Peter is standing by a fire in the courtyard at night, cursing out a little girl and saying, I never knew that man denying Jesus. What made Peter the denier, Peter the abandoner, now Peter the evangelist? It wasn't that he went to seminary. It was the Holy Spirit. It was supernatural power from outside of him. God comes down from heaven in the person of his spirit as a gift from the ascended Jesus, and he is the one that enables change. Think of that. Think of this. That is the exact opposite of what our culture tells us. Do you know what our culture says? Our culture tells us that the power we need for change is within. It tells us that we only need to wake up the latent powers, the dormant powers within ourselves to realize our potential, to, to self-actualize. That's the language we hear about and, and read about. To achieve whatever you desire, to get whatever you want in the world, just you be you. That's what we hear. Listen, the Bible says the exact opposite. The problem is within you not the solution. And if you want to understand Christianity, and if you want to experience the forgiveness Jesus offers, you must get that. The scripture is very clear. And this is verified in human experience. If we're honest with ourselves, we must admit we're all broken on the inside. The theologian Martin Luther said that all of us are curved in on ourselves. We're curved in on ourselves. What he means is that we're so self-centered that we're blind to how self-centered we are. We're so self-centered that we're blind to how self-centered we are. We, We all think we're the center of the universe, and culture reinforces that. And this world is so miserable, largely because there's a whole bunch of centers of the universe wandering around conflicting with one another, stabbing one another, shooting one another, running into one another. And part of what God wants you to believe is that you're actually far worse off internally than you want to admit. The greatest source of your problems is your own heart. 
It's not the people out there. It's not the circumstances you face. It's not the structures or the systems that you were born into that cause your brokenness and guilt. It is your own heart that causes it. Jesus says this in Mark 7. It is not from outside things you take into your body that defile your heart. Oh, what makes you sexually immoral and selfish and greedy is your heart within you. Our hope and our forgiveness and our life and our eternal future are not ever going to be secured by something we do or by something we inherently possess. They're only secured by Jesus coming from the outside to rescue us and by Jesus sending his spirit to rescue us. Something that can change us from the inside out is what is needed. Something that propels us outward with a new purpose and a new vision is what is needed. And that is God himself who has come down in the person of his son and at Pentecost in the person of his spirit. Pentecost is Jesus gifting you with supernatural power. Gifting you with himself. With a purpose though. Secondly, to fulfill his mission in the world. I told you there were three phenomena associated with Pentecost in Acts 2. The first two we've looked at, it was the sound of a mighty rushing wind as the spirit descends, and it was the tongues of fire resting on each of the disciples. The third sign tells us something else, that God gives us his spirit for a purpose. The purpose is there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It is to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus sends his spirit at Pentecost to empower us, not primarily to live in a religious enclave together. That is not why Jesus sent his spirit. Jesus did not send his spirit primarily to empower us to have a holy huddle where all we do is talk to and relate with and spend time with other Christians. No, Jesus sent us his spirit to go out into the world, joining him in his mission to bring reconciliation. That's what the tongues, the third phenomena, mean. Now remember, people are gathered from all over Rome. And, and they're there in Jerusalem celebrating the festival. And when the Spirit is poured out, verse 4 tells us, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in the tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, listen, these tongues are not the exact same tongues that Paul, for example, writes about in 1 Corinthians 12, 15, 14. If you read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, you'll see that the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths. You might say it's one of his primary points to argue that tongues are, are not valuable in a public worship gathering um, if there's no interpreter. Because otherwise, people wouldn't understand what was being said. He's very clear on that in 1 Corinthians 14. But here in Acts 2, the purpose of the tongues is so that everyone would understand. Look at verse 6. At this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. What are the people speaking about? Luke tells us, verse 11, we hear them telling in their own languages, in their own tongues, the mighty works of God. So the Spirit's, Descent causes 
an eruption of praise, of celebrating and rejoicing in God's mighty work in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus for the salvation of the world in languages that all the nations represented there could understand. You must hear this. When the gospel was preached post-resurrection, for the very first time on Pentecost, it was in every language at once. When the gospel was preached, for the very first time at Pentecost, it was in every language. That is so significant. It's so significant for our understanding of what Jesus is calling us as his people into with him. One way you can get at the significance of the multiple languages here is, again, by connecting the New Testament with the Old Testament. There's a very well-known story, even if you're not very familiar with the Bible. I bet you've heard this story from very early in Genesis where another time multiple languages broke out. In Genesis chapter 11, uh, the nations of the world or trying to, you know, build a one-world government. It's the live, right, you know, we're, we are the world, we are the children. One big rally. Sorry, that was a 40-year-old music <laughs> reference. Uh, the nations of the world are together, and they're attempting in their pride to build this tower. Uh, it was probably a ziggurat to the heavens as a monument of their own unified, man-made, human ingenuity and glory. And God, we read in Genesis 11, in an act of judgment, destroys the tower at Babel and confuses the people's languages. This ancient division of languages and cultures was a response of judgment from God against human pride. But here, at Pentecost, we see the beginnings of the reversal of Babel. Rather than being a sign of judgment against human pride like Babel, Pentecost is a sign of reconciliation from God to all mankind, to every nation. And while Babel brought division and confusion as a result of sin, Pentecost brings unity and clarity as a result of grace. I. Howard Marshall puts it like this. Pentecost, he writes is the beginning of a new community in which the reversal of the effects of sin began to appear in a reconciled people consisting of both Jew and Gentile, possessing one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, united in the Spirit. And the gospel being proclaimed in every language is also highly significant for our understanding of Jesus' mission in the world. Track with me. Luke is so careful, the author of Acts, to show us here that the world was represented that day in Jerusalem. And they all heard and understood the gospel in their own tongue. So, by a deliberate miracle, God made sure that there was no language or culture that had precedence over any other language or culture in the Christian faith. Lamen Sana was a theologian who taught for years at Yale Divinity School, and he wrote a book called Whose Religion is Christianity? 
whose religion is Christianity? And Laman Sana is a former Muslim, and uh, in his book makes a very interesting point. He says that any Muslim will tell you that the Quran, the holy book of Islam, cannot be translated. Um, you can get the Quran in English. I actually have a copy of the Quran in English, but a Muslim would tell you it isn't really the Quran. It's the English explanation or translation of the Quran. But, but a Muslim would tell you that translation out of Arabic inherently corrupts. Why? Because for a Muslim, Allah speaks Arabic. Uh, all revelation is in Arabic. And so if you want to hear God's voice, you must hear God's voice in Arabic. Every other tongue in Islam is derivative. And Sanaa also says this is true of Islamic culture, of course. Think about it. Anywhere that Islam becomes ascendant, it unifies that culture with all other Islamic culture. There's a unified, borderline monolithic Muslim language and Muslim culture. In contrast, Christianity, Laman Sana argues, because of Pentecost, is completely different. For one, all Christians believe that the Bible, when translated out of Greek and out of Hebrew, is still the Bible. God is not a Greek, and God is not a Jew. God reveals himself through all languages, truly and really. And the same is true, very importantly, with culture. Christianity is by far the most culturally diverse religion on the planet. There is no one Christian culture that is the correct Christian culture to which all other Christian cultures must conform if they really want to please and know God. The miracle of Pentecost is that the Christian gospel can go to every culture and do two things. It can honor the things in that culture that reflect man being made in God's image, and it can correct through the proclamation of the gospel and repentance of faith the idols of that culture that need to be brought down. So practically speaking, Pentecost changed everything. Pentecost is Really, not just the reversal of Babel, it's the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that every nation on the earth is going to be blessed through your one family. Well, let me close with how does the event of Pentecost inform our mission in following Jesus? I want to say three things real quick as we wrap up. Three ways you can be better Pentecostals. Three ways you can all be Pentecostals. Don't take that out of context. 25 minutes of the sermon already preached, okay? First, remember the gospel is meant for all people without any prejudice. Pentecost informs our missionary mandate if we're followers of Jesus. And it's sad that in contemporary Christian culture, Pentecost is primarily seen as a debate about miraculous gifts and signs. That's not primarily what Pentecost is about. The miraculous gifts and signs are intended to, to serve the mission of Acts 1-8, which is to be Jesus' witnesses everywhere. So we want to participate in worldwide mission because we're, in the truest sense of the term, Pentecostals. If you're going to Argentina, you're doing that. 
If you're praying for missionaries individual, individually or, or with your community group, you're doing that. If you're supporting missionaries financially, you're doing that. If you're loving your neighbors in the name of Jesus with some spirit-led and prayerful intentionality but care about them knowing Christ, you're doing that. So the missionary mandate, the gospel is for everyone. Secondly, Pentecost brings cultural humility. We Americans need to hear this especially. Practically speaking, Pentecost means that an African who becomes a Christian doesn't also have to become an American or adopt American values or mindsets. Christianity, contrary to popular opinion, is not imperialistic. Christianity is not bound by any one culture or race. Christianity, rather, is malleable and flexible. It fits within any culture and any language. The gospel stays the same, but the expression and the cultural setting change. Why? Because God loves all people. Because God loves the diversity of the world he has made. Because God is going to save the diversity of the world he has made and bring it all together in a beautifully united, multicolored, multi-ethnic, multi-tongued melting pot of glory and grace. Pentecost brings cultural humility. Last, Pentecost means that we should seek to be as racially and culturally diverse as possible on the local level. Now, this is not some version of wokeness where Luke is Trojan-horsing in his liberalism about whatever issues that you get upset about when you read Fox News, okay? It's not what I'm doing here. This is not that at all. It's, It's rather a very clear outflow of the work of the Spirit at Pentecost. The church is the place where, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, the dividing wall of hostility is broken down between races between ethnicities, between social class, between gender. So we should pursue, as a part of following Jesus, racial and cultural diversity wherever possible in our local church to the glory of God. And what a witness that is to the world when that kind of diversity amongst unity exists. And the thing that is uniting us is Jesus Christ and his love and not political affiliation or culture war policies or anything else. Let's all be Pentecostals. Context. Let's all be Pentecostals because Pentecost is Jesus gifting us, his church, his people with supernatural power, the power we need for change, to be changed and then to fulfill his mission in the world. Join Jesus in his mission Pentecost calls you to it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray.